Welcome to The Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Listen to Joe tackle the really tough moral issues, current events, and politics from a Catholic perspective. Now here's Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Hello again, Sixpack Warriors. Welcome back to The Cantankerous Catholic, episode 158. I spent two-thirds of my evangelistic work in Alabama. Alabama is a conservative state, but Catholics aren't necessarily welcome. The reason? Because the vast majority of Christians are Protestant fundamentalists. You know, the Baptists and Pentecostals and Church of Christ and non-denominational, which is in itself a denomination by definition, and other assorted Protestant flavors. Fundamentalists like to evangelize. In fact, they seem to live for it, putting Catholics to shame. And because Catholics don't know the Catholic faith, they're easy prey for these fundamentalists. Usually, when a fundamentalist greets a stranger he wants to evangelize, the very first thing out of his mouth is, Do you know Jesus? Me? I just roll my eyes when I hear that because I know everything that's coming next, but the average Catholic has no idea how to respond to that. Still, the question, do you know Jesus, needs to be adequately answered by Catholics, and that's what we're going to talk about this week. You might be surprised by what I have to say. Something special I'm trying to do for you is build a membership area on my website. That area will have loads of video and audio courses you can take at your convenience. There's just one problem, and someone listening can help me out with that problem. I had to purchase a high-end software to develop the members area. But now that I reach an estimated 300,000 souls each week, host weekly webinars, write for three Catholic media platforms, produce weekly bulletin inserts, and other things, I simply don't have the time to learn this new software. If anyone listening is tech-savvy or has worked with Lifter LMS, and if you're willing to donate your time to help, 
I really need you to build out this membership area for me. If you can help, just reach out to me at joe at cantankerouscatholic.com. It's in my show notes. Stupid. There are some truly stupid comments I hear made on a regular basis, and these stupid comments make me want to throttle the person making them. One stupid comment I frequently hear is, what's true for you isn't necessarily true for me. That's got to be the very most stupid statement I've ever heard. It's akin to someone saying, hand me that piano. Truth is immutable, and a thing is either true or it's not true. There are no in-betweens with truth. When someone says, what's true for you isn't necessarily true for me, the first thing I usually respond with is, really? Then I guess gravity doesn't work for you. Or maybe in your world, two plus two doesn't equal four. They just look at me like I'm an alien from the planet Orc. They're so stupid that they don't get it. I'm in complete agreement with Bill Ingvall that stupid people should wear a sign that says, I'm stupid, so the rest of us will know who we shouldn't waste our time on. Another stupid statement is, do you know Jesus? Well, as a matter of fact, I do. But that's not what they want to hear, especially as soon as they find out we're Catholics. When you hear that stupid question coming from a fundamentalist, if you look around, you'll realize that the fundy has you cornered. You're going to engage in a conversation with him whether you want to or not. And because Catholics are so ignorant of our faith, they don't know how to answer the accusations against the Catholic Church that the fundies are going to make. At some point in the conversation, usually very early on, the fundy is going to tell you that you must have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm amazed that I've never heard a Catholic except Terry Barber know how to respond to that. I'm here to tell you that you already do have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Before I tell you how that's true, I want to make a few comments about Protestant fundamentalists. First, they're very good at evangelization. So good, in fact, that there are a tremendous number of fundy churches that consist solely of former Catholics. You probably know some lapsed Catholics who are fundies now. By the way, since the Catholic Church teaches that a Catholic who leaves the church for another religion has no hope of salvation, you have a moral obligation to tell him so. It probably won't do any good, but you still have the obligation. Another thing about Protestant fundamentalism is it's a very narcissistic brand of Protestantism. Although the things they say will lead you to believe they're focused on Jesus alone, they're not. They're focused on how good they feel in the practice of their particular brand of Christianity. That's pure emotion. Emotion has no place in religion. Emotion in religion is narcissistic in itself. Besides, anything based on emotion is built on sand rather than a rock foundation. Emotion will always, 100% of the time, emotion will always let you down. No, faith must be built on logic and right reason, and it must have a set of rules given directly by God. Now to the question about whether you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, that depends. 
If you accept everything Christ teaches through his Catholic Church, the church he established, and if you do everything he said we need to do, then you do indeed have a personal relationship with Jesus. Fundies, on the other hand, don't have a personal relationship with Jesus because they reject almost everything he taught and established. A personal relationship with Jesus Christ is only possible in the church he established, and that church is the Catholic Church. There are quite literally millions of Catholics who don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, though. You might be surprised to learn that you're one who doesn't, but I pray that you do. Let's list some of the things that keep a Catholic from having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. If you reject any of the constant teachings of the church, no matter how small, I regret to tell you that you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. If you refuse to obey the rubrics the way they're written for the Mass, you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. If you think you can pray directly to God for the forgiveness of your sins and avoid going to the priest in confession, you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. If you're using contraception, you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus. If you're not at least trying to learn the fullness of Catholic truth, you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus. If you aren't obeying Jesus and sharing the faith with others, you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus. If you're not striving to become a saint, as Jesus commanded in Matthew 5.48, you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Sadly, if you fit into any of the seven things I just mentioned, you not only don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, but chances are you're going to hell as well. But Joe, learning everything the church teaches, not acting with everyone else at Mass, and accepting church teachings I believe are ridiculous is hard. Besides, a priest told us that we can use contraception, and I refuse to confess my sins to a child-abusing priest. Okay, moron. I hope you like hot, dry climates then. In Matthew 7.13, Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. In other words, the vast majority of people, including Catholics, are going to hell. Every single Catholic, regardless of age or circumstances, has a moral obligation to learn the fullness of Catholic truth. Every single Catholic has an obligation to worship God as he demands, which is why the church provides rubrics, so we won't turn the mass that Jesus gave us to worship the Father into a mockery. Contrary to what Protestant fundamentalists think, if you meet the simple conditions set by Christ and the church who he has given authority to speak for him, you already have a personal relationship with Jesus. In fact, when fundies tell you that you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, you tell them that you can't get any more personal than to take his whole body, blood, soul, and divinity into your body and soul. Indeed, this is something that fundies can't do in their churches. I mentioned the conditions Jesus gave us are simple, but simple doesn't equal easy. These conditions aren't easy. They're hard. 
They require personal self-discipline and your cooperation with the actual grace he bombards you with every waking moment. So let's talk about some of the hard things you have to do. Let's begin with confession. Jesus established only one way to ask for the forgiveness of our sins, and that's to orally confess our sins to a priest. That's it. That's the only means of forgiveness Jesus provided. It doesn't matter whether you think your priest is a bad guy. He's still a priest. Only a priest can forgive your sins. If you're not going to confession at least once a month, you're playing with fire. Literally. Going to confession implies having a rightly formed conscience. The only way to form a right conscience is to learn the entirety of the faith with an emphasis on Catholic morality. It's important to understand that a right conscience is fully in conformity with God's laws. This means that you not only must accept everything in God's laws, but that you must also live by those laws. That means no more contraception or sacrilegious communions because you receive in a state of mortal sin. This is one of the hard things that requires discipline and cooperation with actual grace. In learning about the faith, while there should be an emphasis on Catholic morality, you must learn to accept all of the constant teachings of the faith. If you don't, you're not a Catholic. Some people say they accept everything except purgatory or the real presence or the immaculate conception. Folks, if you reject any one thing in the church's teaching, you reject all of it. Catholicism isn't opinion-based. There's no such thing as cafeteria Catholicism. You must accept everything that the Catholic Church officially teaches. I realize that with a pope like Francis and some crazy bishops and priests running around today, it's not easy to avoid confusion and know what's true or false. So go to my show notes in this or any episode. Under the resources section, there's a link that says, I want to learn more about the Catholic Church. Click on that link and fill out the form to begin getting a free email course and invitations to my free weekly webinars. I promise that none of what you'll learn is opinion, but rather the constant 2,000-year teachings of the Catholic Church. If anything I say is my opinion, I'll tell you it's my opinion. Otherwise, everything is strictly Catholic truth. Jesus requires us to become saints. Most people won't fully realize that divine goal, but that doesn't mean you don't try. Begin working on that now. A good way to take a first step is to make a morning offering at the beginning of each day. This sanctifies your entire day. There are lots of different morning offerings available, and you'll likely have one in your prayer book. I use the Fatima morning offering, but you can use any of the many others available. If you can't find one, just reach out to me. Jesus also tells us that we must share the faith. We must evangelize. Like everything else, it's simple but not easy. Sharing the Catholic faith means learning the Catholic faith and Catholic apologetics. It's not enough to know what the faith teaches, but in order to evangelize, you also have to be able to explain why the church teaches what she does. Now, I'll admit, rather reluctantly, I might add, 
that there's a shortcut on this one. Some people are so terrified and lack confidence so much that they can't bring themselves to evangelize. Direct evangelization is always best, but for those who are afraid, there's another way. Financially support an apostolate that's involved with direct evangelization. Support apostolates like Church Militant, St. Paul Street Evangelization, or even this apostolate. Then, for every good work the apostolate does, you'll share in the graces, sort of getting credit from God for their work. It's not enough to just make a one-time donation, either. If you intend to fulfill the requirement that we all must evangelize, a one-time gift to apostolates like I've mentioned won't cut it. In order to share in the achievements of these apostolates, you must make your financial gifts on a weekly or monthly basis. So decide what apostolate you want to support financially and fit it into your budget, just like the gas or power bill. What I've talked about in this episode is just a start. There's lots more to be said, but I've given you plenty to think about this week. Just remember one thing. You can become comfortable and risk eternity in hell, or you can become committed and strive for heaven. Comfort and conviction don't live on the same block. As a reminder, stay on this episode for the Catholic Boot Camp as Simon Rafe speaks about the treachery of our American Catholic hierarchy. You're a six-pack warrior. That means you're part of my Catholic family. And that means that I'm always going to look out for you in any way that I can, spiritual or temporal. This time I'm looking out for you temporally. I've already emailed everyone on my email list about this, but since only about 1% of you are on my email list, I thought I'd better put this in the show. As you all know, I've had a debilitating stroke and I'm stuck in a wheelchair. In the last three months before I had the stroke, I'd lost over 30 pounds and was just a mere 15 pounds from my target weight. Then came the stroke and my 30-day stay in a rehab hospital. I have diabetes, so I was placed on a diabetic diet, but I've never seen a diabetic diet quite like this hospital's. It was almost all carbohydrates. Consequently, I gained 40 pounds in that one month. In the five plus years since I had the stroke, I've had to fight for every ounce. I've lived by the diet that my VA dietitian has me on, which has been good, but it hasn't helped me lose weight, only maintained. My weight has stayed the same, but my blood sugar numbers have been surprisingly good for my weight. But then I ran across a product that's caused me to lose almost 20 pounds in the two months I've used it and brought my blood sugar numbers down. It's called Java Burn. Obesity and diabetes are two of the leading health problems in America. So I'm assuming that many of you are in the same shape I'm in. You're either overweight, have diabetes, or both. Everyone's different, so I don't know whether Java Burn will work for you the way it has for me, but I felt like I needed to share it with you. There's a link in my show notes that takes you to a video that explains Java Burn. If you or someone you know needs to lose weight, watch this video. 
then let me know what you think. Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy, wants to make sure you're informed about all the Catholic news you need to know. Here's Joe Sixpack's top five Catholic news picks for this episode. Catholic news pick number five. Hats off to Fox News. CDC Director Rochelle Walensky confirmed that fewer than 3,500 children are in hospitals with COVID-19. That number is dramatically smaller than the 100,000 that Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor claimed during the oral arguments Friday. Walensky said, while pediatric hospitalizations are rising, they are still about 15-fold less than hospitals for our older demographic. Wow! That's just incredible! You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic News Pick Number 4 Hats off to Catholic News Agency. Blaise Cardinal Supich was heckled and booed during his speech to the March for Life in Chicago. Supich claimed the hecklers were pro-abortion counter-protesters responding, Now I know you people, there are some in the crowd here who don't respect the unborn, and that's too bad. But let me speak, let me speak. In a video from the event, however, it seemed to be conservative critics of Supich who were heckling him. Why, you must be delusional or something. You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic News Pick Number 3 Hats off to the National Catholic Register. If the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade in June, voters in Kansas might face the first test in a post-Roe environment. On August 2nd, the value-them-both constitutional amendment goes to a statewide referendum. It would allow the state legislature to restrict abortion violence. In 2019, the Kansas Supreme Court claimed that the state's constitution protects abortion as a fundamental right. You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic News Pick Number 2 Hats off to the Washington Examiner. Senator Ron Johnson, Republican of Wisconsin, has announced he will seek a third Senate term in the swing state of Wisconsin. Political pundit David Fredoso writes, If Republicans want to build a majority in the Senate this November, they don't want to be waging an open-seat battle over the Senate seat there. That's why Mitch McConnell is probably breathing a lot easier over Johnson's decision to run again. You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic News Pick Number 1 Hats off to the Daily Signal. Leah Thomas of the University of Pennsylvania was born a male and identifies as a woman. Isaac Hennig of Yale University was born a female and is transitioning to male. Both swimmers competed in the Ivy League's 100-meter race, with Thomas losing to Hennig. Despicable! You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes.
I am hard, but I am fair. It's time for the Catholic Boot Camp with your drill sergeant, Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Learn the Catholic faith and how to defend it like you've never heard it before. This boot camp is tough, so there's no political correctness, no spirit of Vatican II, and no namby-pamby platitudes. Drill Sergeant Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy, will prepare you for spiritual war. Now here's Joe Sixpack. Most listeners aren't old enough to remember Joseph Cardinal Bernardin, the late Cardinal Archbishop of Chicago, but you need to understand our national Catholic history under him. In this episode of the Catholic Boot Camp, Simon Rafe reminds us of his evil machinations. The age of imperium of empires and emperors is over. From the Persian Empire taken over by Alexander to the Roman Empire that dominated Europe to the Holy Roman Empire that endured in one form or another for over a thousand years to the modern empires of Britain and France, all have been conceived, born, grown to strength and then faded and died. Since the Second World War, the geopolitical fashion has changed. Now we have independent nation-states, not sprawling polyglot empires of mixed ethnicities unified by allegiance to some distant emperor. And yet, the idea of imperium does not rest easy. New empires sprung up after the war, not empires of territories and kingdoms held together by armies and rulers, but cultural empires held together by philosophical thought. Their conquests were not of new lands captured militarily, but rather new minds brought into the empire's way of thinking by persuasion, exposure to the prevailing culture, all backed up by the wealth of the new cultural hegemony. War has given way to something much less honest. The great cultural empire today is the modernist liberal West, set against the remnants of Western civilization and Christendom. Make no mistake, the current Western culture is not the Catholic civilization that made the West. The names might be similar, many of the appearances and trappings are the same, but modern Western culture, with its emphasis on permissiveness, relativism, rejection of Christianity, and denial of objective truth, is just as opposed to genuine Western civilization as polytheistic Rome, Soviet atheism, or violent Islam. We see this cultural imperialism everywhere, banishing Christianity from the public square, legalization and then promotion of immorality such as adultery, fornication, contraception, divorce and homosexuality, even the enforced denial of basic self-evident truths such as the difference between men and women and the elevation of emotions and feelings over logic and facts. This cultural assault is achieved with the carrot and the stick. The carrot is the ever-present promotion of pop culture and ideas, while the stick is the brazen use of military, economic, or political power to force other cultures to accept the norms of the West's imperialism. Leading the charge in this dark crusade against Christendom is America. Rising from the ashes of the pre-World War II world order, the United States assumed a superpower status, one which the fall and failure of Soviet communism did nothing to diminish. In fact, now America, and the anti-Catholic and Enlightenment ideals of the revolution that spawned her, stands almost unopposed in the world, leading the cultural imperium of the modernist West. And so it was no accident or mere chance that it was in America at the United States Bishops' Conference that the greatest blow against Paul VI's attempts to prevent communion in the hand was struck. There, American treachery set the stage for the granting of an indult for communion in the hand, an indult which my team aims to show was won by deceit and deception, and so, in our view, gives no permission at all. As leader of the West's modernistic cultural imperium, the United States sets the tone. 
Deny it if you like. Many countries actually bemoan and decry the influence of American pop culture, language, and mores on their societies. But as America goes, so does the world. For the United States to accept, promote, and even insist upon communion in the hand was a tremendous achievement for the agents of darkness trying to downplay or even deny the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Just as the Second World War changed the geopolitical order of the world, so too did the Second Vatican Council mark a watershed in the governance of the Church. In 1966, the Vatican started national conferences, conferences of all the bishops in a particular country. The goal was laudable. A top-down, completely hierarchical model of governance wasn't seen as effective. National conferences respected the notion of subsidiarity, where decisions are made at the lowest possible level, where knowledge of relevant factors is greatest, rather than at a higher level, where there might be ignorance about local conditions. The idea was to provide local bishops with a forum to meet and discuss to plan evangelization and come up with the most effective way of spreading the gospel in their local areas. But the conferences are only bodies for discussion, not governance. Authority in a diocese remains with the bishop in charge, the local ordinary. It doesn't matter if the conference votes a particular way, the decision remains a suggestion, and a local bishop is not bound to obey it. As Pope Benedict said, truth is not determined by a majority vote or of even greater relevance to this particular issue, the counselors and structures of the Episcopal Conference exist to serve the bishops, not to replace them. Too often, unfortunately, the bishops' conferences are used as a means of either pressuring good but weak-willed bishops into implementing poor or even evil decisions under the guise of collegiality, or just wanting along to get along and not rock the boat, or of giving bad bishops cover for their own questionable decisions. Well, it's not as if I want to do this. It's not my policy, you understand. But, well, the conference. We've seen that on all sorts of matters, from support for left-wing policies on matters of prudential judgment, such as immigration and gun control, support for questionable social justice missions, even inappropriate outreach to the gay and lesbian community. And, of course, we see it all the time when it comes to bad liturgical practice, such as mass versus populum, the use of the vernacular, altar girls, bad music, worse hymns, and, of course communion in the hand. The Bishops Conference in the USA started out being called the National Conference of Catholic Bishops, or NCCB. Now, it changed its name in 2001 to the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. Perhaps they were worried people would be confused about which nation they were representing. No fear of that. Frankly, it was clear almost from the get-go they were definitely representing American interests, cultures, and thought. Surprised by me saying that? After all, the NCCB consisted of all the bishops of the USA. Surely at least some of them were good guys. Well, yes, but that isn't the point. Truth might not be determined by a majority vote, but the overall decision of the conference is. And while the rule is one man, one vote, it's not always that simple. As in any group, there are members wilier, more politically minded than others. Some people aren't as well versed in the issues or are just inexperienced or eager to get along. Either they aren't sure how they might vote and so follow the crowd, or they get influenced by the way more prominent members of the group think. In groups all the way down from Congress and the Bishops' Conference right down to parish councils and your circle of work buddies deciding which faux cantina to eat at on Taco Tuesdays, pressure mechanisms form. Charismatic, driven, even manipulative people who have an influence disproportionate to their number. In the NCCB in the 70s, the strongest of these pressure groups was the so-called Bernadine Machine. This collective of like-minded bishops took its name from Joseph 
Cardinal Bernardin, who was president of the NCCB from 1974 to 1977, and the infamous Chicago Machine, a democratic political outfit in Cook County, Illinois. This organization was famous for graft, bribery, and behind-the-scenes deals, but also for getting things done. It was a perfectly appropriate nickname for the group of bishops Joseph Bernardin, then only an archbishop, not cardinal, used to railroad through communion in the hand during the 1970s. Let's remember the history here. In 1969, the Vatican released Memoriale Domini, a document which not only decried communion in the hand and said communion on the tongue was the legal norm and the preferred method, but also showed a majority of the bishops and faithful laity did not want the law or practice changed. This document came at the end of four years of Paul VI fighting against communion in the hand in Protestant-dominated parts of Europe. It should have been the final nail in the coffin of this terrible abuse. Instead, it was the crowbar which leveled open Pandora's box. The thin end of the wedge was the so-called concession clause at the end of Memoriale Domini. It reads, Where contrary usage, that of placing Holy Communion in the hand, already prevails, in these specific cases, the Episcopal conferences should examine matters carefully and should make whatever decisions, by a secret vote and with a two-thirds majority, are needed to regulate matters. They should present them to the Holy See for the necessary confirmation, accompanied by a careful explanation of the reasons by which they were led to making them. Pay careful attention to that. In particular, three points. The custom of communion in the hand had to already prevail at the time of writing Memorially Domini. There had to be a secret ballot and it had to get a two-thirds vote. Only then could an application be made to Rome for an indult. Without those conditions being met, any application, even one which was ultimately granted, it would be invalid. Bear that in mind as we look at the history. In 1975 and 1976, with Bernardin as president and chairing the meetings, a motion to petition Rome for an indult to distribute communion in the hand was brought up at the annual NCCB meeting. Each time, it was defeated and voted down. It was clear there simply wasn't the desire for it, even among the bishops of America being pushed by the Bernardin machine. And then came the 1977 meeting on May the 3rd in Chicago. And how was Notre Dame? The gift shop was open. Were the archives. You are by far my favorite agent. Are we done? No. How's your Russian? These are the minutes of that meeting, the May the 3rd, 1977 NCCB meeting in Chicago. My team found them in the archives of the University of Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana. Now, we, now they keep them restricted. We can't actually show you the minutes or quote directly from them, but if you want to see them yourself and you don't have your own team of agents to go get them, you can make a request to the archives and they'll send you a copy. The minutes say the meeting opened like any meeting. While they don't mention donuts and coffee, let's presume that happened. On page five of the minutes, we read about the presentation of the agenda. Pretty standard stuff. For the third year in a row, the NCCB, the National Conference of Catholic Bishops of the United States, has brought up the issue of communion in the hand. Another attempt to get that two-thirds majority to petition Rome. United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. Your national game is baseball, right? One strike, two strike. Maybe Bernardin's a fan of the diamond, and he thinks three strikes and he and his diabolical plan will be out. Maybe that's why he swung so hard for it. 
but not without opposition. Pages five and six of the minutes show how Bishop Blanchett acted quickly. He proposed an amendment to the agenda requiring a written poll by the ordinaries, that is, bishops who are in charge of a diocese, to confirm communion in the hand was in fact the prevailing custom. His amendment also said any vote on petitioning Rome for the communion in the hand indult should not happen unless this poll confirmed communion in the hand was the norm in the USA. Now, Blanchett's amendment is perfectly reasonable and entirely legitimate. Remember the first of the conditions. Communion in the hand must be the prevailing norm in order for any petition to be sent to Rome. You don't even have to see what Blanchett is doing as being against communion in the hand. Really, he is just making sure all the pieces are in place so the NCCB doesn't waste its time. If communion in the hand isn't the prevailing norm, then it doesn't matter if 100% of the bishops voted for it. Or maybe if they followed Chicago voting practices, maybe more than 100% could vote. But we actually get ahead of ourselves. If communion in the hand isn't the norm, then it doesn't matter what any vote of the bishop says. Memoriale Domini makes it clear no legitimate petition can be made to Rome. And without a petition, no indult can be granted. Blanchett's motion to add the amendment was supported by five other bishops. The chair, now, remember, this isn't some Alice in Wonderland, Salvador Dali world of talking furniture. The chair was a man, a bishop by the name of Bernardin. The chair said this motion was in order and that a written vote would be taken. Now, the minutes don't record if he winked and nodded while saying this, so we have to assume that he did. Because almost immediately the Bernardin machine rolled into action. On page six, the minutes say Bishop McManus asked Bernardin whether or not Blanchett's motion was in order and if it were in order, how it might be overruled. Just stop and think about that for a second. It's a perfectly legitimate motion which was seconded and ruled in order by the chair. All it's doing is asking for a formal written vote to determine whether or not a later vote is going to be a waste of time or not. But Bishop Blanchett's amendment was more than that. It was a threat to the machine's agenda of ramming through communion in the hand. Bernardin and his fellow agents of darkness knew communion in the hand wasn't the prevailing custom in the US, and they knew a written vote would reveal that. Remember, a written vote is a private, secret affair. They were created in order to prevent pressure from being applied before or after the fact to the electorate. If no one knows who or what you voted for, fear or favor cannot influence you. If Blanchett's poll revealed the truth, the machine's plans will be scuppered before they even set sail. Three strikes, you're out. But remember, Bernardin was the chair. Perhaps he saw it more as a throne because he was very helpful to Bishop McManus. He told him the motion could be overruled by appealing the decision from the chair to the body of bishops with a voice vote being taken. Now, Blanchett, and really all men of goodwill interested in the truth rather than an agenda, want written, not voice votes. Voice votes can easily be manipulated. The judgment lies in the ears or the heart of the chair. Guess what happened? If you're guessing Bishop McManus quickly appealed the decision, which was quickly seconded and then quickly put to a voice vote, which the chair, that is Bernardin, lest you forget, quickly overturned Blanchett's amendment and quickly declared it out of order, congratulations! But don't feel too proud. It was pretty obvious that was the way it was going to go if it went to a voice vote, which is why Blanchette wanted to have everything in writing. We pick up the story the next day on page 31 of the minutes. Cardinal Carberry points out that in 1969, Rome had said communion on the tongue should be maintained and not changed. He brought up a picture which some people, perhaps just useful idiots, journalists not doing their homework, said was the Pope distributing communion in the hand, but was in fact just him giving out a rosary. Now, I mention this little detail as more than just an interesting sidebar. Media manipulation isn't new. 
As I say, perhaps it was just journalists phoning it in, trying to get the story finished before their Friday night deadline. But the fact Cardinal Carberry mentions it and has to correct the record shows the agents of darkness had been advancing their agenda quietly for years before this fateful meeting. Carberry is also on record as saying there was a danger of irreverence when communion was given in the hand and that the bishops had received an overwhelming amount of mail from the laity opposed to the practice. There was no mandate from the laity and communion in the hand was not a prevailing custom. This evidence recorded in the minutes of the NCCB's meeting is expert testimony from a sitting archbishop with extensive pastoral experience in St. Louis, Lafayette, Indiana, and Columbus, major Midwestern dioceses, the heartland of America that Bernadine wanted to claim was gung-ho for communion in the hand. On page 33, Cardinal Kroll speaks up. He's on record as being distressed that a parliamentary device, which is polite code for you conniving weasels used underhanded methods, was used to quash Bishop Blanchett's perfectly good motion. Remember, all Blanchett wanted to do was find out by written vote whether communion in the hand was widespread or not. Kroll was worried the Bernadine machine was going to ram through communion in the hand, sending a petition to Rome when no petition should be sent. But that didn't stop the Bernadine machine, really. Who would have expected it to? But you might have expected the bombshell Bernadine himself dropped, also on page 33, to have done so. There, he admits he did not get the two-thirds vote as required. Of the bishops present at the May 1977 NCCB meeting, less than two-thirds voted for communion in the hand. So legally, that was it. The resolution to petition Rome for an indult did not pass. No petition can be made, and so no petition will be granted. Case closed, right? We've come all this way. Paul VI has fought the good fight, suffered some setbacks, but in the end, justice and truth prevail. Oh, how naive you are and how little you know of the mendacity of the agents of darkness. Bernadine didn't let that stop him. Remember, this was Chicago, where one man, one vote is more of a suggestion than a rule. He wanted to poll the absent bishops to try to get a two-thirds majority by the simple expedient of bringing in more voters than were present. Now, you don't have to think hard before you realize the huge problems with this. Who would poll them? How would the votes be counted? How would fraud be prevented? Can the vote of a man who wasn't present for the discussion be considered informed? Now, the laws of the church suggest it can't. The code of canon law, the rules that govern the church in force at the time of the meeting don't actually talk about bishops' conferences because the 1917 code predated their introduction. But the Vatican II document, Christus Dominus, did mention them, and the language it used to refer to the two-thirds vote requirement was incorporated into the 1983 code of canon law, canon 455 paragraph two. Now, both documents speak specifically about deliberative votes. That means the votes of people who are present for the discussion. Most canon lawyers agree polling absent bishops is not legal, according to the principles of Christus Dominus, later incorporated into the revised code of canon law. And that is without the bad taste absent polling naturally leaves in the mouth. No one is saying for certain underhanded skullduggery deception or misrepresentation happened when absent bishops were polled. There was enough trickery in the meeting itself, thank you very much. Nor could we say voter fraud definitively happened. There is literally no way to know. And that is the problem. If there were the votes for the issue and communion in the hand was the norm and wanted by the bishops, why the parliamentary chicanery? Why the absentee voting? Why the possible violations of canon law? The answer, of course, is simple. There weren't the votes for the issue present at the meeting. Communion in the hand wasn't the norm, and the bishops and the laity didn't want it. Who did? 
the Bernadine machine, the agents of darkness who were responsible for pushing this abuse through so they could get their indult. For the record, they apparently got their two-thirds majority by privately polling whatever bishops were absent, and they sent the petition to Rome. It was granted barely a month later on, June 17, 1977, and that was that. Communion in the hand was officially legal in the USA. And in the post-World War II New World Order of the American Cultural Imperium, that was a big deal. As America goes, so does the world. It was and is officially legal. But that's an awfully low bar. There's a principle in canon law, in law in general really, and in life itself. Permission under deceit is no permission. Let's not talk about the law, let's talk about a teenager wanting to go to the dance. That's what teenagers do, right? They go to the sock hop and jitterbug to their 45s. A teenager asks his mother if he can go to the dance and his mother asks, did you do your chores? What did your father say? And the teenager says, yeah, I did chores. And dad says, yes. And so mom, thinking everything is copacetic, says, sure. And the teenager says, gee, swell, mom, you're the bee's knees, and takes Cindy to the sock hop. It's a long time since I was a teenager. What happens if starry-eyed Richie didn't do his chores? Or when he says, I did chores, he's being deliberately deceptive because he did some chores, but not all of them. He took out the trash and he tidied his room, but he didn't mow the lawn. And he didn't ask his dad at all. That was just a straight up lie. Mom said he could go to the dance, but did he really get permission? When his parents find out, is he gonna get grounded? Well, if his mom and dad are good parents, hopefully. The situation is the same on a larger scale for communion in the hand. Reading the minutes of the 1977 NCCB meeting in Chicago, remember these are their own minutes, not something produced by people with an agenda. Reading these minutes, it's obvious there were major issues with how permission was granted vis-a-vis -vis the required conditions Memoriale Domini outlined for petitioning Rome. No established practice of communion in the hand as a prevailing norm and no two-thirds majority of deliberative votes obtained through a secret ballot. Lying to the lawgiver, and this is a lie, there's no other way to slice it. Lying to the lawgiver doesn't change the fact conditions aren't met, it only adds the breaking of the Eighth Commandment to the breaking of the Fourth. And just so we're clear, lying to the Vatican to get permission to abuse the Son of God in the flesh is a lot more serious than fibbing to your mum so you can take the prom queen for sliders and a pineapple shake at the drive-in. <sighs> In all seriousness, it's our position that communion in the hand in the USA and in other countries where permission was granted under similar circumstances might be de jure legal, but it's de facto illegal and an abuse, just as it was before 1977. It's a sin of disobedience, not because people are defying valid commands from a legitimate authority, but rather because they are following commands invalidly obtained by deception. It's a sin of disobedience to distribute or receive Holy Communion except on the tongue as the universal law dictates. Now, that isn't an official ruling from the Vatican. We leave final judgment of the NCCB's actions to the competent authority, the Congregation of Bishops in Rome. Consider this an open letter urging them to consider the question. Our position is certainly controversial. It may cause shock and outrage. If it does, so be it. Actually, if so, and that shock and outrage causes people to think about the issues, good. Our position isn't some cockamamie conspiracy theory. It's well-grounded on provable facts of what actually happened, what agents of darkness actually did and recorded they did, as well as knowledge of the pertinent laws and norms. 
Our goal here isn't to be controversial for the sake of controversy. Our goal is to protect, defend, love, and serve our Eucharistic Lord Jesus Christ, true God and true man, really, truly, and substantially present, body, blood, soul, and divinity under the appearance of bread given to us as food for our salvation. And our goal is to protect, defend, love, and serve our fellow Catholics, many of whom are being denied authentic worship of Christ and who are risking losing their faith because of the abuse of communion in the hand. Because the practice is widespread now, isn't it? It's everywhere and it's clear that Paul VI and all the other popes were right, that the abuse of communion in the hand will damage the face of Catholics. Their belief in the real presence falters and so too does their belief in Christ, his church and the sacraments. And when that is gone, their salvation follows too. We know this is true because we've all seen it. It was Satan's plan and his agents of darkness, witting or unwitting, have carried it out expertly. Now communion in the hand is so widespread, so common it has become more than the norm. It has, in some places, become mandated. But that was never the intention of granting any indult. That was to give permission not to issue an order. Once again, agents of darkness, or rather now, a generation later, useful idiots, have twisted what was given into something it wasn't. If you want to fight against communion in the hand on a personal level, a parish level, even on a diocesan or church level, you need more than simply saying the original permission was invalid. You need to be able to show how communion in the hand, as practiced today in most parishes, is not only an abuse, but also happening against its own rules. Did you know that statistics from Keras say that 70% of Catholics get 100% of their Catholic information from your parish Sunday bulletin? After my pastor mentioned to me that he'd like to find a way to catechize the whole parish without setting up a class, this little statistic inspired an idea. With my pastor's permission, I began writing a bulletin insert called What We Believe, Why We Believe It. Since it's merely inserted into the bulletin, it's intrusive, meaning that parishioners have to remove it to read the bulletin. In the process, they read this little thumbnail catechism lesson, and they let Father know that they love them. You see, I teach the faith with stories, anecdotes, and parables. They're not your typically boring catechesis. And best of all, I teach why we're supposed to believe the Church's teachings, which affirms your parishioners in their faith. As a convert and consecrated member of the Marian Catechist Apostolate under the direction of Raymond Leo Cardinal Burke, I teach the entire faith, even tackling the really tough moral issues. You can learn more by watching an 11-minute video by clicking the link in my show notes that says Six-Pack System Bulletin Inserts. So you can try it without risk, you can get it for three months. You can even download three samples while you're on the page with the video. This is ideal for good priests who want to help their parishioners become fully catechized, and a lot of lay people get a subscription for their parish as a way to support the parish without having to give the bishop any of their money. To learn more, click on the link in my show notes that says Six-Pack System Bulletin Inserts. It just requires 11 minutes of your time. I believe a really great way to teach the faith is through stories, parables, and anecdotes. So here's today's story. A 
farmer while at work one day saw a party of hunters riding over his farm. In one of his fields, the wheat was just coming up. Therefore, he was anxious that the hunters shouldn't enter his field and trap on the tiny shoots. So he sent one of his farmhands, a bright young man, to shut the gate to the field and stand guard over it. He told the lad that he must not allow the gate to be open for any reason. The boy had hardly reached the field and closed the gate when the gunners galloped up on their horses and ordered him to open it. The boy refused, saying, My masters ordered me to allow no one to pass through this gate, so I'll neither open it myself nor allow anyone else to open it. When the hunters heard this, one of them threatened to thrash him if he didn't open the gate. Another offered him some money to open it, but the boy couldn't be frightened nor bribed. Then a stately gentleman came forward. My boy, do you know me? I'm the Duke of Wellington, one who's not accustomed to being disobeyed, and I command you to open that gate so my friends and I may pass. The boy took off his hat to the great man whom all of England honored and said, I'm sure that the Duke of Wellington wouldn't want me to disobey my orders. I must keep this gate shut and won't permit anyone to pass without my master's permission. The brave old soldier was pleased with this lad's answer and lifting his own hat said, I honor the man or boy who can neither be bribed nor frightened into doing wrong. With an army of such soldiers, I could conquer the whole world. The young man was faithful in keeping the fourth commandment and showed it by keeping the command of his lawful superior. He obeyed his master even though he was threatened with a beating and encouraged with a bribe. Even the duke couldn't make him disobey orders. Don't ever let yourself be threatened or bribed into doing wrong. Like the brave farmhand, be willing to suffer rather than disobey. The Catholic Church is 2,000 years old. A lot of wisdom is gained over two millennia. Each week we'll share some of that wisdom with a Catholic quote. So here's this week's Catholic quote. This week's Catholic quote is from St. Catherine of Siena. She said, And of what should we be afraid? Our captain on the battlefield is Christ Jesus. We have discovered what we have to do. Christ has bound our enemies for us and weakened them that they cannot overcome us unless we choose to let them. So we must fight courageously and mark ourselves with the sign of the Most Holy Cross. Hey, six-pack warriors, before you leave this episode, be sure to go to my show notes and click on the subscribe link. Just pick Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or Amazon Music, whichever one you want to subscribe through. You don't have to subscribe to hear the show, but the more subscribers there are, the more these platforms will make the cantankerous Catholic known to Catholics looking for good podcasts. And please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use. The more reviews, the more the show gets shown to Catholics looking for good podcasts. 
and I thank you. This has been The Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Thanks for subscribing, and be sure to visit cantankerouscatholic.com to get your free copy of Joe's popular book, The Best of What We Believe, Why We Believe It.